Hey, everybody. Today's guest is none other than super producer extraordinaire Howard Benson, uh, who has produced... Uh, a ton of, of uh, huge hit records uh, and done a couple of less than Jake records, most notably Hello Rock View. Um, we talk about History of a Boring Town and how that was the first song Howard produced that he was truly happy with. He talked about how the end of Big Crash brought him to tears because it was such a big dramatic ending and how he applied that to future songs that he produced. We discussed a lot about the emergence of Pro Tools and how Howard was way ahead of the curve on using it. Howard also shared how he packed up all his stuff and brought it to a small studio in Florida uh, that was, was more or less a demo studio to record Hello Rock View. And how he's super competitive as a producer, takes on every uh, project, wants every other producer to die, and compares himself to Michael Jordan in his competitiveness. For all this and much more, stay tuned. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. If you uh, remember correctly, that record, the Less Than Jake Hello Rocky record, was one of the first records done in Pro Tools that was a rock band. Yes. And a lot of it was, you know, um, you know, I had to bring the whole system down there from, uh, <laughs> I had to pack it up from LA. And anyway, like I just really, you know, learned how to use it. So I'm like, not only learning how to use it, I'm learning how to card it. So, you know, I have to put it in all these kind of um, cases I had to buy and everything. So I got down to Gainesville, I think, where, where we did it. And I was really determined to use Pro Tools on that record. And I think the reason I bring that up is because that particular song was one of the first songs that I had ever produced that I was really happy with. And I think a lot of it had to do with because we had Pro Tools. And I don't think I could have produced any of that record in it on tape. And uh, a lot of it was because the arrangements were still forming in my mind and I'm sure in the band's mind. And, yeah. uh, and in that song was one of the later songs that was written. And uh, I remember really loving that song and just going, you know, wouldn't it be great with all these harmonies and parts and stuff. And, and the fact that we had the computer to do a lot of the rearranging to, you know, make the drums sound really, and, you know, time out everything, you know, the way it is now, but, you know, back then it wasn't done like that. Uh, sure. Really, you know, that was a big deal, you know? And uh, I just really liked the, I liked the beginning of the side. When I first heard the song, I remember thinking, Wow, this is a really good song. But if you remember, there was no chorus in that song. No, and, the the that same whole crowd that you know the the history of a boring town. The the chorus part was not there. You're right, and I remember right. remember you saying. And let me just back up for a second. You know, everyone that I've had on guys and bands, songwriters, it, it's such an integral thing what the producer does. And you're not just a producer. You know, Howard's an arra uh, an arranger, a composer, and that I have to really really stress because. You know, you really taught me, taught us how to, you know, the, the, the songs on Hello Rock View were pretty primitive when we, we went in and, and you were teaching us how to, you know, no, there has, there should be a bridge part here. This should do this and do that. And that's where Pro Tools came into play because you were starting to flip, flip. I'd come into the studio the next day and you'd be like, listen to this. And the bridge wouldn't be where it was at the, the day before. I'd be like, whoa, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. And that was something that really, if you were an accomplished I there was a time when like it was sort of like uh, the Renaissance in paintings or something like that, where, you know, or, uh, you know, when Monet was painting where you sort of like, you know, he was at before Monet, everybody had to go through the, you know, the, the officials to make the record, their paintings correct. And with Pro Tools, it opened up the ability to do a lot of the things that like guys like, you know, uh, Bruce Fairburn and guys back then, Mutt Lang and those guys were doing because they had so much money to do records. They had like a whole year to do records and, you know, all the cutting tape and the, the ways of thinking about songs you, we, because our budgets weren't as big, we had to do that in one shot. Like we had to get the drum arrangement right, right away. We had to get the guitars, right. The vocals, all the stuff because it was on tape and we were kind of stuck with it or we had to sit around and punch and punch and punch and punch and punch. And that was like with a band like uh, you guys, especially with the horns and everything, it makes it a harder record to make because you're dealing with like, you have to make all the decisions up front. And I wasn't thinking that way as a producer, I was thinking way in, at that point into the future thinking, wow, I have the ability to act like those producers, but with the, the computer, it levels the playing field. 
Right. And, what what convinced you in 19? That was 1998 we did that, early 98. What convinced you that this was the future? Because certainly, you know, innovations and, and technology, things had come in and out that you saw come and go by the wayside. What made you go, that aha moment? I think it was that, um, and this is from a producer's point of view, I could make the record I was hearing without having to negotiate everything with the band. Like, I could literally <laughs> sit sit in front of the computer with my mouse. And I remember thinking, I have control. I have the mouse. And back then, no bands knew how to use Pro Tools, right? They, no. And that took 10 years almost, or even longer from when we were using it, you know, when I started using it. And, um, you know, it just, I knew at that point that there was no way that producers were not going to love this technology. And it really took them five years to catch up to me. I think because I, the record before you guys was Sepultura and I had done the Sepultura against record in the computer, not realizing that I was actually using the computer. Like, like they had had it say Apollo because they didn't have a tape machine. So that's the only reason I got into it. And when I used it, I went, wow, this is pretty powerful stuff. But can I imagine I could apply it to like, a pop rock band where you can really, you know, cause like Sepultura bands like that, the computer's important, but they're going to d- put down what they're going to put down. You know, they're not going to like rearrange things. It's very much like almost progressive metal stuff, you know, and here, and, here's what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. Right. So I kind of like thought, okay, with well, a band like less than Jake, I was willing to pack up all that stuff and bring it all the way to Gainesville. And I remember in the middle of, um, boring town and this was a big moment in my life and you pro- you guys probably didn't realize this was happening but i was uh you know tr- the, the computer was crashing all the time okay and, oh and I, I, I remember that <laughs> yeah and and if you looked at pro tools sideways it crashed at that point so i i was using two gigabyte removable drives to try to get more and more space but you had to literally delete audio all the time just so the damn thing would fit in a record right so I call up DigiDesign and they used to answer the phone, you know, like, <laughs> which well, is amazing. You know, I was like, Hey, it's Howard. It's is Steve there. You know, you know, let me get him. So, you know, I, I talked to say Steve, you know, the IRQ, cause I was using power PCs back then, the Mac that was on the power PC. Right. So the whole system was all screwy and, you know, it was, it was thrown together. Basically it was, it was something that Steve jobs came in and got rid of right away. Cause it was so bad. This the, uh, the, the thing. But anyway, I'm talking to the guy in DigiDesign, and he goes to me, you know, we've got this kind of plug-in that we got from a company up here that does stuff for the Army. And I said, what is it? They go, well, it's a company called Antares, and they make a, a plug-in that changes the – that can control the pitch of vocals, like a vocal tune, an, an auto-tune. And I said, well, I'll just send it. And I remember a couple of days later, it came to the studio in a little envelope. It was a floppy disk. It was auto-tune one. And there was nothing to it, just a knob, you know, and they wanted me to try it out. And I remember when we were doing Boring Town or, or Metalheads, I'm not sure which ones of the songs, but you were singing and you have the more tunable voice because your voice is more like straightforward. Roger's a little bit more all over the place, but, but it worked on both you guys. And I remember putting it on and going, oh my God, like, like, <laughs> like these guys sound like, like they're all like, and I know with Less Than Jake, it's more of a punk ska band. So pitch wasn't like that big of a deal. It was more like the vibe, you know what I mean? But I started going, wow, I can actually, t-. so I ended up using that plugin. And I remember when I first put it on and it was on, you know, hello, it was on that song, you know, boring town or rock. yeah, boring town. I, was, I thought it was on uh big crash because Aaron, I remember we were working, I was working on both those songs at the same time because uh-huh. Aronson loved big crash. Right. You know? And, and I remember that and boring town were a pair to me like in the same moment. And I don't know which song I put it on, but I remember thinking, wow, listen to the way those harmonies sound, you know? And then I started to produce the song more and more with that big ending. Uh And I wanted it to be epic. And I remember thinking, I've never been able to really make an epic song. And the way you guys could both sing together and you could harmonize and with the horns and, and the drum and Vinny's sort of okay with that kind of drama. uh, It was the first time I got a song that I listened to back and I went, wow, at the end I was in tears. Every time the song comes on, I still feel that feeling, you know, oh, that sounds awesome. it's, it's such a big ending, you know? Yeah. And I, and I, I, I applied that to like youth of the nation and I applied that to like move along. Those are the same kind of songs. Like they have big endings and they are epic sounding material. So 
that was why I brought up Rockview because, and I brought up Boring Town because, you know, I thought Big Crash was good, but we never quite accomplished the same thing. I'm not yeah. sure what it was with that one. It just. Well, that song goes through three different key changes. I thought I was being clever. And sometimes when you're clever, it turns into crap. <laughs> well, you know, Craig loved that song and I gave him, tried to give him his due. Uh, the one funny thing about Hello Rockview, especially Boring Town, if you listen to the horns, they are through auto-tune too. Oh, yeah. And you can tell they're through auto-tune. Like that was an overreach on my part. I always regretted that. But, um, you know, fast forward to mixing the record. And um, we went to, I think you guys had come out to Image with Chris Lord Algae. I think yeah. you might have. Mm-hmm. So we wheeled the computer. Now, Chris, remember, at this point had never seen Pro Tools. You guys were the first band that he mixed in a, he, you know, he was a tape guy. Yeah. And, and for those of you that don't know, Chris Lord Algae has mixed everybody. If you've heard him on the radio, you've heard Chris's mixes from pop stars to rock bands. So yeah, you, you go wheel this stuff in there and he was just like, what are you doing? Yeah. He, and, and, and he goes to uh, his tape guy. He goes, it doesn't look like tape. I don't want anything to do with it. Tell him to go away. And, <laughs> and I said, and you know, I was still a little like no hit producer at that point. And I was like, Chris, just give me a chance. He goes, how do I hook it up? I said, I don't know. You know, it's your studio. So he made a really good decision right then. And he decided to go analog, analog, instead of trying to go digital, digital, which we never would have been able to do because of all the clocking errors. Yeah. He decided to go out analog, in analog. And then I was sitting in the bathroom in the hallway. Remember, there was a bathroom off to the left over the right. Walk through it. And I hear him out in the hallway talking to uh, the second engineer at a studio. And he goes, I fuck that fucking guy is so full of shit. This thing's a piece of fucking shit. That guy, should, <laughs> that guy should take this thing out of here. Who the hell is he? And I remember sitting there going, Oh my God, like, like this, this sucks. Like this is my like second meeting with Chris Lord algae and it's going South. You know, the computer's crashing. Uh, you know, nothing's worse. It's a mess, you know, but then when we got it up working, Oh, and then one thing we found out about AutoTune is I had it on your guys' voices, but I didn't know how to print it at that point. And every time you turn the computer on, it defaulted to C major, right? Oh, so Chris, you didn't realize you didn't get you didn't see that part of it. So Chris calls me up at home and he goes, "I don't know, man. Either, either this band writes some weird vocal parts, or there's something wrong with the way you did the vocals." Or I said, "Well, look at the track that's called vocal." And he goes, "Okay." I said, "You see that little pl- thing that goes auto tune at the top?" He goes, "Yeah. What's it do?" I said, "Well, it's supposed to tune the vocals." And so what I had to do was set it for the key we were in. And at that point it wasn't even programmable. So like, luckily you guys didn't like, um, you know, flip out of keys to that much. I mean, we had to do some of the mixes and pieces, Sure. but you know, we got it to work. So it was kind of like crazy, but it was the really, I mean, I always say that between that record and probably um, the Soundgarden record that uh, Michael Beinhorn was doing at the same time, he was in Pro Tools. I mean, the two of us were sort of the, in front of the the, the world. You're really the first. I and, mean, you know, everyone thinks of the auto tune as like the, the share vocal effect, uh, believe in 2000. We, we were three years uh, preceding that. <laughs> and we, and yeah, yeah. And you know what? It's still, you listen to it now. The only thing is, it still sounds wackier, the horns a little bit, because they don't, they're not as punchy as they could be, be again, because of the auto tune. Right. But, you know, the vocals just sound freaking great. And Vinny, you know, I did a lot of the drum editing by visually at that point because I didn't really know about the grid yet. Right. So I, uh, I don't even think they had the grid on it yet. But, you know, I would just like kind of put a, a, a ruler up to the screen <laughs> and measure <laughs> the beats and cut the drums to the beats. And that was crazy. I was well, locked in a room off to the side. I don't know if you remember that. I was yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I want to give a little backstory at this point. So, you know, Howard's a Philly guy, uh, Philadelphia. He began uh, playing keyboards at a young age, played in bands, and he, you, you cut your teeth in the 80s. He was producing some metal bands in the 80s, and that got it up into the early 90s. And all of a sudden, the bottom fell out of the industry. People weren't returning his, uh, his phone calls, and he's like, what's going on? And, you know, you kept trudging through. It's testament to who, who you are, man. You kept trudging. You kept taking jobs. And you've even said it yourself that the Hello Rockview was kind of a turning point for you. You were like, okay, people are starting to return your phone calls now. You're starting to, and it wasn't long after that that you started having massive hits. Yeah, well, I think that Hello Rockview was a big shot in the arm because I, I know that the 
it wasn't like it was selling millions of records, but the fans loved it. You could tell by, at the time, the zines that were out. And there was more and more internet stuff going on at the time that we, you know, was sort of brand new. And mm-hmm. we were all seeing the reaction. You know, I was always worried about beating Losing Street because I, my friend Michael, um, who was the guy who produced Mike that? Rosen. Yeah, I knew Michael, Michael from, uh, you know, working in San Francisco a little bit. And I was always competitive. I mean, he didn't know that, but I... It's funny, after watching the Michael Jordan stuff, I realized I was very much like him about being competitive with everybody. You know, I I wanted to beat the shit out of every producer. Like, I didn't want anybody surviving. And you did. (laughs) Yeah, but I kind of like get, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, you know, I don't know. I just wanted, I wanted, I wanted them all to die. (laughs) I was like, I hope they're all gone. You know, I want to be the only guy. And, And people would like take, take, they complain and go, Howard's taking every project that comes along. Yeah. And I would say to Aaliyah, my manager, take every one of them. Don't say yeah. no to anything. Because well, you know what? Who knows, right? Does anybody really know? No. Any of this stuff? And, and, and especially, Lynn, because things were changing so fast with the technology. You, you know, and it's just, it's amazing that you really had that gut. And, and, and you were working with Pro Tools. It was so primitive. You're putting a damn ruler up to the screen to measure drum hits. I mean, you know, and then you're walking into Chris Lord Algae, who at the time, he, he had a pretty darn good name for himself. And you're trying to make connections and you're going, uh-oh, is this door getting slammed in my face? Am I making the right decision by doing this? You know, um, I, I can tell you one thing, that Hello Rock View is a, uh, to this day, uh, probably the number one fan favorite record. There was just... There was a number of things that that came together with that record. Roger and I were uh, we had been a band for about five years. We were starting to learn really how to sing well together. But I can't stress enough uh, of the arrangement, the composing part. I mean, I, that, I I learned how to sing on that record not so much from being under the whip of you and and uh, you know on, on the mic live. That that definitely helped. It was after the record hearing how you put the vocals together and how they were in tune. Now it's like, Oh shit, I got to replicate that live. <laughs> That's a really interesting um, thing you just said. Like I've never had a singer say that to me about, Oh, oh yeah, that. And I mean that with all my heart, I learned how to sing on that record. I made my voice. I was a ragtag punk singer and we certainly had underlying pop sensibilities and, and wanted to have, have great harmonies, but losing streak was just, it was to cut the tape. It wasn't line. Nothing was lined up. Um, and there's there's a certain charm to that record. But but it was Hello Rock View where it all came together. And and then it was like, okay, now we have to play these songs. <laughs> now I have to learn yeah. how to. I have to. I want to make. And Roger and I practiced our practiced our ass off. Um, well, I remember the that um, I was shocked about one thing in that you guys. I didn't know you guys at all. And when I remember, I came down to meet you guys, and I assumed I didn't know who wrote the lyrics, right? And because I love that New Jersey sentiment that is in a lot of those lyrics, the visual street yeah. thing. And when I found out Vinny wrote a lot of that, you know, like that was sort of his conceptual thing. It really kind of like it was a little it was shocking a little bit that he was coming up with that stuff. Like, I just didn't think that would come out of him, you know? I yeah. Really- and I had so many people. That's a great thing you brought up. I had so many people over the years say, well, how are you singing songs that you didn't write? How, how can you sing them from the heart? And you, and you got to remember, I met Vinny when I was 15 years old and him and I started writing songs together. I was in, we were in high school and that's all I knew. He'd hand me these lyrics and go make something out of that. So they came from the heart. I had nowhere else. Delivered. Yeah. It takes a lot though. To, let me tell you something. People undervalue. Well, actually they don't, but you look at Sinatra and people like that. But if you can deliver what somebody else wrote, you're you're almost or lyrically that to me is mad respect because I I think a lot of singers don't have that breadth of experience in their lives they can only do what's internally there and that's it they don't really do well seeing other people's stuff mm-hmm. and I think the fact that you 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 were always a, you and both you guys you and Roger were a great mouthpiece for like the sentiment that you know he was, I always believed it. Let's put it that way, you know? And, and I, yeah. And I, and I think that's testament to why we're still around is that believability. It wasn't just some way. You know, yeah, we had a silly songs here and there, but we weren't the wacky party ska band. We were like, we had this crazy live party vibe, but there was this underlying, uh, uh relatable, serious tone with the lyrics. I mean, a song like Al's war. That's a sad lyric. Like giving up Sometimes I think You're the only one 
do I love that song. Yeah. That was probably my favorite lyric on the whole record. I just, what, what was it sad? Because I always thought he was like the, the lyric where he goes, he's under the streetlight and he's, he's proclaiming his, um, you know, uh, freedom. Right. Is, and there must've been, I mean, I thought that was very like uplifting. Oh know? yeah. That was, it was uplifting. I, I say sad. It was, it was there. I, I, I would say like this. there'll be days like this. Uh, yeah. More, great. more, more serious tone than sad. It was, it was a serious subject, but it was, it was, yeah. sung, it was sung with this energy that came across. And like I said to, you know, to this day, uh, especially in England, that record just that, that made us, uh, for lack of a better word, superstars over there. I mean, you go up to today, people still have, uh, uh all the time. I, Hello Rockview tattoos at the front cover. And, um, you know, not to, uh, you know, uh, kiss your butt or anything like that but you know i have had kids especially in england talk about you you know and we've worked with some big name we've worked with rob cavallo and rob's amazing in his own right but i've never had kids come up and talk about the producer you know howard benson that record it sounds amazing it's this and it's that and um again there was something really really special about what, what we created well i'll tell you one thing it couldn't have been in a worse like place because I mean, <laughs> we were in a studio that was like old kind of run down in a in Gainesville which was empty of people at that point and, yeah we recorded know, in, the, in the summer when uh the school enrollment goes from 50,000 to about 10,000 people so it was a ghost town and we had Howard put up in this section of town it was uh one of those um uh, sweets. It has like a little kitchenette in it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we shoved you down there in a rental car. And you and I talked about this not too long ago, which is, which is crazy. There was no internet, no, no way to pass your time. You weren't a drinker. You weren't going to be going out to the bars after the sessions. You know, you were, you were a family man at that point. And I, I said, what the hell were you doing when you go back? Cause you could say exactly what I was doing. You said you were playing video games. I was playing Nintendo. I dragged my <laughs> Nintendo NES down. And I played like, I think I was on Mario Brothers 2 at that point. Like I was the, the, the girl, I was playing the, like the, you know, the four characters in that one and the, they're in the sand and all that. You know, I just got stuck on that and Mega Man and, you know. Well, because nowadays, like, nowadays you would take your session home if you wanted to and work on it. You know? Okay, well, of course. Yeah, that's what we would have made the record. Probably not faster, but it would have been a different vibe. But yeah, yeah. I used to go to the studio though on the weekends and do a lot of uh, editing. Yeah. And I remember. I remember, do. you know, we, we respected you for a number of reasons, but you were an L.A. producer. It was like this big L.A. producers come. We never worked with anybody like you. And I remember you were in that little room. And this, you know, Mirror Image in Gainesville, guys, is a really <laughs> small studio. It's a demo studio, basically, that we were recording Hello Rockview in. And we get this guy from L.A. to come in. And he's in this little room editing on this new system Pro Tools. There's Howard in there. And I remember you, you threw down your headphones. You're like, can I get a fucking second in here? And we're like, a second? You need more time? You're like, no, a second. We did. We were so green. We didn't know what that meant. That he was asking for a second engineer. There wasn't even a second engineer in in in, in Gainesville, let alone at Mirror Image. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. I used to be a lot more feisty back then. <laughs> but, <laughs> who, who was the engineer? What was the guy's name that did the recording? Uh, well, there, Bob McPeak was there. And um, then we had uh, Steve Kravak. Was, Steve Kravak. Yeah. He Steve, was from L.A., right? Did he Steve, come from L.A.? Or? Steve's an L.A. guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. I, I think we picked them together somehow. Like, I forget. He, used to, he did some other records that were stuff you guys liked. He produced an MXPX record that we That's liked. what it was. And yeah. um, he had also done some stuff in the eighties for a Canadian band. He's a Can Steve's Canadian. So he did this band that no one knows that I used to love. And uh, so, yeah, there was, you know, that, that was some of it, but I mean, here you were at the time. I mean, you were fighting to, to, to get your name back. Cause you, you had a, a, a decent name in the eighties. And then when the bottom fell out, like I said, you know, it was hard to get phone calls. You had, had told me at some point you were, kind of having uh, uh, doubts about uh, a career in music still. And here you are clawing your way back to the top. And it's like, you know, when you were screaming about the second that day, I saw your frustration. I remember it. But you weren't about, you weren't about to give up and quit. You couldn't. You were, you were in the trenches at that point. Oh, yeah. At that point, I'd already, like, I think that I'd switched management. I had a decent manager. And, 
uh, you know, I just done Zebrahead too. I don't, I'm not sure of that record. I think um, I'd done only the one yellow one at that point. But you guys liked that band. The, yeah, the one on you had. The, I remember the yellow cover on Doctor Dream. The, the 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 major label record wasn't out yet. Waste of mine. Yeah, yeah, the yellow one. And uh, you know, I own Doctor Dream. That's kind of why we put it on Doctor Dream. That was mm-hmm. a whole other part of my life at that point. But like you know, that was also another band that wasn't quite in Pro Tools yet. But it was and you guys liked them because they were sort of crazy and rappy and ska-ish, and like they were all over the place. Yeah, you know, but they were kind of similar to you, where they had a singer with a big voice who carried the choruses. Sure, you know? and that's what you did, you know, and you had you could carry those choruses. And you know, I just remember thinking, you know, if we could get some really good songs, you guys had everything else going for you. You know, you had the touring, you had the you know the merchandise. The, he had a major label, mm-hmm. you know, Craig really believed in you and it was all, it was all really good. You know, I, yeah, we've mentioned it, a couple of times, uh, the name Craig, Craig Aronson was our A&R person uh, at Capitol who ended up signing us again to Warner brothers. <laughs> so right. he definitely was, was a believer, uh, in the band. So let's go a, a little left to center here now and, and talk about, um, you know, when did you know at what age? Because I know you, you again, you played keyboards, you were in a number of bands. Uh, I've seen the pictures, I've seen the afro. Um, <laughs> and when when did you know that this is my calling? I think I think I can produce records. I can do this. When it, was it when you were producing your your own bands back then? Yeah, I think it was also the the uh, l- the lack of success of my of our band. Like I was in a you know, the one thing I we came out to you know, I was working in as, as an, an, aer- an engineer actually for an aerospace company. So when I went back in Philly, I went to Drexel University and uh, got my degree in, in materials engineering, which is basically that mechanical and electrical. It's aero, basically aerospace. So when I came to California, I'd worked for Garrett Air Research for like from when I was like 21 to 25. And, uh, you know, I worked in leading edge slat actuation systems. I was like a full on nerd. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street. I had the pocket protector, the whole bit, you know, <laughs> and it was a good job. It was in Torrance. I mean, I made good money. It was at the time like 25000 a year. It was 19, you know, 80 or something, 1981 or something. So I did that for four years, but at the same time, my band, you know, some of them f- came out from Philly, the guitar player who was my main guy, kind of like your Roger ish or whatever, Vinny, you know, and uh, we've got some band guys together and we started making, you know, demos. And I was very lucky to run into a guy from Sunset Sound named Bill Jackson. I was introduced to him and he got me into Sunset Sound uh, to use the studio. As long as he engineered was, was his angle. I could produce stuff and I skipped a pretty crucial step in my like development as a producer. I started producing without having like any mentors. So I came straight in as a producer. I didn't do engineering. I'm talking about audio engineering, no second engineering, no coffee, nothing. I just found the artist, got the music together and started doing that. And a lot of it was because my band sucked. I mean, we would play (laughs) shows and people, you know, across the street would be Motley Crue and we'd be laughing at them because they sucked, you know, right. Like really we sucked. And it was, you know, you realize at some point in your life that, uh, you know, you're a pretty well adjusted guy, maybe in comparison to most people in Hollywood. And it takes a certain, like, um, you know, I don't know what you would call it. Uh, I just was too, too well. I was brought up really well. So as I start, as I kind of came to the conclusion, I really have no problems really to talk about with anyone. And I don't have any, like, I don't have anything to say to the youth of America at all. So <laughs> that, well, that kind of takes me out of being in a band. Right. So I kind of like decided, okay, you know what? I'm doing these demos with my band and people seem to like the demos and they want to hire me to do demos for other people. 
So about four years into my engineering thing down in Torrance, I said, you know what? I'm going to take a couple years off from engineering, which my parents almost went bananas as they spent all this money sending me to college and try doing producing. And you know what happens in Hollywood? Success is always around the corner. Sure. So you never quite know how, which, how far the corner really is from you. So, you know, I stopped, you know, doing the engineering and started producing demos and demos and demos. And I finally did a band called TSOL by accident. I actually met them in Hollywood and Vine at a Denny's. And, you know, it just one thing leads to another. And, you know, I, I think when I met you guys, there was like, I had gone through, I think, two or three ups and downs at that point where like I was not successful, then I did a little bit of success and I was not successful then a little bit. So I kind of knew how to handle the, um, the valleys, you know, right. like I was, you know, in fact, when I met you guys, I had just been fired from giant records. I was working as an A&R guy there. I remember that. Yeah. And I mean, we like our label was bought by, you know, we were folding up and they were going to, you know, the Eagles came back and the guy who worked there, Irving Azoff, their manager, ran a company, manages the Eagles. So all of a sudden we decided the company wasn't really worth anything doing anymore. So I was let go and I went through a lot of stuff like that. So it was a lot of like, honestly, very typically in Hollywood, you're basically failing the whole time, you know, <laughs> and you may have a little success, but nothing's happening and you're failing and failing and failing. And then finally, I think like anything else, you learn, you know, by, you know, the streetwise what to do and what not to do, but you really don't know it at the time, you know, like you, you just feel like shit all the time because you haven't any hit records and you keep producing records and nothing's a hit. But so when you guys came along, it was like after I'd done a few motorhead records, so I started doing bigger band. All of a sudden I kind of got my mojo back with motorhead and Zebrahead, And then you guys came along and, Really shortly after you guys, I kind of got POD, which was something that, you know, I think by doing Rockview and by doing all those records in pro the pre POD and having the engineering background, the aerospace background, the computer was not that difficult for me to pick up. Uh-huh. You know, I had already done CAD CAM stuff and designed wings for airplanes. I mean, geez, recording digital music, nobody dies, you know? Yeah, well, that's funny you bring that up. I was just talking about this some the other day. When I first put my Pro Tools stool together, uh, studio together back in 03, uh, I had never worked on a Mac before. So I had to learn how to work on the whole system. I had no, that's what took me the longest. I already kind of knew my way around recording a little bit, but it was, that's what took me the longest was, was learning the computer. And a lot of people don't know what's really going on digitally. Like, mm-hmm. like, because on analog, you know, people, you know, I'm talking about professional people of my level, they, they visualize the sound hitting tape and the magnetic dipoles and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, uh, biasing the tape and all this kind of shit. So they think that way, but in computers, we're talking about ones and zeros and sampling rate and bit rate and, you know, uh, all this kind of stuff that makes no sense to anybody back then, mm-hmm. you know, like how can you could record how, like I used to have artists say to me, I can't believe I can record into a computer and I can hear it back. I mean, <laughs> at that time it was magic. Like, because you were, you had to use tape. Yeah. Like, it's almost, tape, un- tape. it would be unfathomable if you came from a, a complete, I mean, I came from an analog background, but it was kind of like, I don't know. It also happened so fast and I was younger, but you take someone that's, that's my age now, back then, someone's 45 years old and going, yeah, you can record a computer. They would tell you you're crazy. And they did. And that's kind of <laughs> what it would kind of benefited me was a lot of reticence to get into it. I remember even up to 2003, I was getting projects where people would go, listen, we're only hiring you because you know how to use Pro Tools. Like the other three guys we talked to said we have to use tape because of the sound and the saturation and the drum sound and all this other kind of stuff. And the more you use it, the more you realize, you know, what really isn't that important is all that crap that they talk about. What's really mm-hmm. important is the songs and the vocal performances and the arra- the, arra- the big, the big picture shit, like whether the, you know, the drums sound a little bit better on tape than they do in a computer or less blah, blah, blah. That never affects anything. Nobody. No. I mean, look at what happened with the MP3. You know, that didn't affect anything. And that made records for a while. Music sounded like shit. Absolutely. Absolutely. You well, know? You, you brought up a good point. So I want to go back for a second now. You're growing up. Did you know, like when you'd hear stuff on the radio as a 14, 15, 18, 18 year old kid, did you, were you analyzing why songs were hits at that point? Did you co- consciously no, do that? In my own, yeah. In my own way, I was actually in so many bands when I was a kid. 
Like I, when I went to Drexel, my grade point average was pretty shitty because I was in like three bands. I was like in a fraternity band. I was in a disco band that played down the shore in Wildwood and uh, Cape May and all that. And then I was in a local band that we did wrote songs. So instead of going to class and learning about what I should have been learning about, I was always involved in making and arranging other people's songs, not mine. I wasn't writing songs yet, but I was always fascinated by the sound of things. Like I, I remember when I first heard light my fire, that was really the song that changed my life because I remember the sound of the organ, the sound of the Vox continental. Uh-huh. And I remember thinking, what the hell is that? Right. Like, like I remember the sound of it was so, and then I realized that part of the reason I liked music too, was my mom was a piano teacher. My mom would always be downstairs playing the piano. And she used to play a lot of like T for two and songs that had two five progressions, you know, and like, you know, D minor G or F sharp, F minor B flats, you know, those kind of progressions and light my fire comes out and it's essentially a two five progression. Right. And not knowing at the time what that was, I just know I liked it, you know? Uh-huh. So I kind of looked up the doors and I bought an organ and I'd gotten a band and, you know, just for fun. But then you realize, and you know how this is, I'm sure once you get in a band, that's it for you. You know, I mean, (laughs) you know, especially if you like, you know, the attention you get from girls and, you know, all that back then in the, you know, right. Really in the seventies and eighties, there weren't as many bands. So it was a lot easier to stick out in the crowd. Sure. Sure. So, you know, but you know, I, I guess I, I always, it's weird because my life was always music and engineering. I liked the technical aspect of it a lot, but I also loved the music. And I think I never, I was very lucky to kind of have both, you know, I didn't really, right. have to be, I didn't have to learn in a studio for eight years about how a patch bay worked or how a tape machine worked or how the, I don't even really care about the rest of it. I mean, honestly, I still have engineers do all that stuff for me. If somebody said to me, Hey, can you show me how to mic a guitar amp? I'd be like, no. <laughs> yeah. But that, that wasn't what you were concerned with. You were concerned with the hit. Let somebody mic the amp. I'm going to sit here and work on the arrangement. And that's why you continue to do what you do, which leads me to my, to my next thing. So, you know, we get, you get done with less than Jake and now, now you're getting into the PODs, the, my chemical romance, the Hoover stanks. Now you're having hit record after hit record. Now I know uh, many great producers over the years that just kind of hit stumbling blocks, didn't have hit records after a while. They maybe weren't getting the songs that they, or the projects they are, are, you know, good enough songs to produce. I, that had to have happened to you through that. Like the Hoobastank, I know you were, you, you could be picky and choosy at that point. You were having hits, but like certainly some bands were still coming to you as stuff that you're like, Oh, this needs some work. And you really had to put, put some work behind it. And, what kind of struggle was that sometimes? Because you uh, certainly you might have a band that you work with that had, that sold two million records. Now you're doing the next record, and you're like, guys, the songs just aren't there yet. Well, I think that really never made a difference to me back then. I mean, I honestly didn't think of any of them. I actually thought doing bands' sophomore records was harder than doing their first record. You know, a lot of times there was a massive amount of expectation for the next one if they sure. had a hit. Sure. And I I realized that early on when I had it. I had a hit with. Um, Hoobastank's second album and and Cold as well, their second album. And I remember thinking, you know what? I'm going to pitch myself as someone that can do the sophomore record. I'm not scared to take that last shot. I'm not scared to be the Kobe. Like, give me the ball. I'll do right. it. You know, because a lot of people fucked up the second album. So Papa Roach was a great example of doing a first album. A second album was a stiff. And then they hired me. You know, But I looked at it like, I'm going to approach every album as if it's the band's first album. Like every one of them. If it's the fifth album, I'm approaching it like the first album. Like you got to prove to me you have great songs and we have to go in and record this like it. you could get dropped after this album. Well, and essentially I, that's the truth. Yeah, and I, I'm not so sure. And, and again, this isn't, uh, uh, you know, kissing up to you. I mean this with all my heart. I, I'm not so sure that, that Papa Roach, uh, if they wouldn't have went with you, if that third record would have been a success, I know that you were inter- integral in putting that thing together. I know you were, and 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 your your track record uh, uh, proves that it was record after record. And th- all those bands you were working with, no offense to them, they they couldn't have just been coming to you, handing you gold every time. Here's a gold song, make it sound good. Here's a gold song. I mean, there there's te- it's testament to what you were bringing to these bands and that's why you were getting people to come and why your career hasn't hasn't taken a dip since then i mean it's been remarkable um 
you know, well, move along. the rejects were a really good one because they came to me and I said, no. And I, they said, well, fuck you, Howard, we'll get somebody else. And six months went by and uh, I said, no, because the songs weren't good. That's all. It wasn't because I didn't like them or right. anything like that. But I went to Atlanta, saw them play and said, no. And then six months later, they called back and they said, you know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe we do need better songs. And then they wrote Dirty Little Secret and Move Along. And Move Along was a song I helped out with a lot. That was a song that, you know, I mean, both those songs I did a lot of work on. But Move Along especially was lyrically nothing like it ended up being. was just and at the time you know i felt really in touch with that kind of thing i had i had some people in my life who were going through really bad times with work like they didn't know what to do with their lives and they were frozen in place and i remember when tyson wrote that lyric it wasn't quite about that but i remember we had a late night discussion and we just said you know let's just personalize that lyric and those are the kind of things that you like you have to run with those feelings you know what i mean like you don't know when they're going to hit or you don't know who you're going to be surrounded with that maybe echoing what somebody might say, Mm -hmm. you know, it's very chaotic. That's the one thing. It's so chaotic, you know, but one, I mean, I think that also, I also had a really good team and I still do. Mm -hmm. And I focus on the important stuff. I don't, I try not to get out of focus when -hmm. it comes to like, you know, they asked Steven Spielberg a really good question on his special. They said, have you ever thought about what really makes your music, your, 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 your uh, films great? what the special sauce is. And he goes, you know, I really hate that question because if I think about it, I may not have it anymore. Like in wow. other words, he doesn't know what it is. And the, the more he thinks about it, the scarier it becomes, mm-hmm. you know? And I sort of have that same feeling about things. Like I sort of don't really know what it is, mm-hmm. but I think that it's sort of something, it's kind of like when you guys go up and play a show, you guys can go up and play a show and you know when you've killed it. But sometimes you don't know what day that's going to be. Like, you don't know, like, and some days you, you, you went up there and you, you thought you killed it, but you didn't <laughs> That's right. and, and you don't know why. So, um, we're getting near the end here. We're going to wrap up. I just, sure. I, I got a question I want to ask you. And so, um, aside from your family and your children, which tell them, I said, hello, um, you know, outside of personal stuff, I'm just speaking about career. Mm-hmm. What, what, what is your proudest moment? I, I mean, I, I'm looking here at my notes. I mean, you, you, you had the, the best uh, pop vocal album for Kelly Clarkson. You won a Grammy for that. Uh, you know, the, won a best hard rock performance for Love Bites from Hailstorm. You, producer of the year. I mean, you've had all these accolades, but what, what's your proudest moment? You know, it's funny. I think that maybe, um, maybe it's just cause how I've had some, you know, I struggled in my career early on. I think it's, I think the proudest moments are when I've been able to get off the ground. I think that's the, when, when you're off the mat and you just, there was a time I think after bang tango's second album came out and um, it didn't even come out. They dropped the band. And then I did a band called little Caesar that barely came out. Like this is the end of the hair band era. Sure. And a lot of my records were being not released. And because the band, the labels had already moved on to Nirvana and modern rock and all that. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I don't have any money in the bank. I, I've got like, you know, one kid. I don't know what to do here. And all I knew is I was going to book a flight to South by Southwest and try to find a band to sign. It was a modern rock band. And I went down there and I, you know, a friend of mine sent me to Austin rehearsal complex and I found a band and somehow by hook or crook, I got this band signed to giant to Atlantic, then to giant records because the Atlantic deal, they weren't going to have me produce it. So I got Irving Azoff somehow to pay it. Like it it literally was like one wrong move in my career would have been over, you know? And I ended up being an A&R guy for, for giant. And it was the fact that I didn't give up at that moment. Mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, I think that anybody will tell you, you know, those are the kind of things that it's the struggle that you kind of are proud of. It's not, you know, I and I, 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 I kind of thought you were going to say that's why I brought up the Grammys and, and most people that are in your position that have that type of crazy success and accolades and the, the gold record on the you know, platinum record on the wall. They're, they're going to say what, what you said of, because 
though that's really what you remember that's that's the that's the shit that got you to the grammy yeah the rest of it is look i'm very happy to get all that stuff and i like it's very important for business to have all those gold records and platinum sure records sure the artists won't agree you know, believe anything you say unless you have them so you know i think that you know and that's also something when i did you guys i didn't have any platinum records or gold records when i did your band and the fact that we came out with something so good without me really being, I mean, personally, I wasn't that believing in myself at that point. Like I sort of wished I had had a platinum record to walk in the studio with, and I still didn't, you know? And so I always doubted whether you guys were paying attention or you really believed. you know, there's always that doubt in your mind, you know? Like, yeah. Well, and of course, I'd have a platinum record, you know? And of course so, we didn't, we didn't know any better. We were so green. I was 23 when I made that record. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. But we had a fun time doing that list of hair bands. Well, I still have that list. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> Kyle, when we, we, were, we were recording Hello Rock for you, Howard and I came up with a list of, of, of every 80s. Heavy, when, God, we would laugh. I'd be like, Cats and Boots. You're like, how the hell do you know those guys? <laughs> yeah, I actually lived it. And I, was in the, I was in the scene in that time, and he, you knew more than me. Like, I didn't know I had those bands. So uh, <laughs> lastly, we're going to leave our listeners here uh, with w- what's going on with you. Time to plug everything, uh, Howard Benson. Uh, plug, oh, you mean like the records I'm on? Oh, no, on just, just any, any projects you're going on. And I know you have uh, the, the, uh, the plugins that you've recently released. If you'd like to talk about that. Well, yeah, the vocal, the Howard Benson vocal plugin. Which is amazing. It's, and you can sing like Chris Domains. Yeah, <laughs> I use it for every, uh, every session that I do at home on my demos. I love it. It's, uh, yeah, H- Howard Benson vocals. It's, it's amazing. Well, it's funny. The, the guys in Three Days Grace use it on every th- instrument. Like, I, don't, I just use it on vocals, but I can see how you can use it unlike everything because it's got all kinds of crazy stuff, but it's also presets are pretty easy to use. Oh, Plotnikov's got one in there. just has acoustic guitar and I put it on my acoustic and it just, it shimmers and shines. It sounds amazing. I love the plugin. And then there is also, um, uh, STL tones and that's the guitar suite, which is awesome. Uh, the rock lead that you have on there, I use it for everything. It's, it's so cool. Oh yeah. I use actually, uh, I'll tell the listeners what I use. I use amp number three, and I use the center cabinet. And I don't know why I like that, but I blend that into every one of my guitar, real guitar tones. And it just seems like it adds it adds beef to like a real recording. Because a lot of times real guitar, I love real guitar tones and all that. But the one thing about plugins is it makes everything super present. And it's sort of like fun to have that mixed in to, you know, because, you know, we have the budgets where we can do like the real deal, you mm-hmm. know, the yeah. real things. So, but uh, yeah, that and I just finished. Um, what did I just finish? Oh, I did the Ten Years record that just came out. Okay. And uh, I just I'm doing. I think In Flames will come out later this year. I finished that. I'm doing Apocalyptica this week with Jacoby singing a vocal on Apocalyptica's record, and then I had the Issues record last year that did really well, and a new Three Days Grace record coming up, and you awesome. know just. I mean, somebody has to make the records. It might as well be me, right? It might as well be you. And I am uh, uh, so happy for you, man. I'm, I'm uh, honored to call you a friend. And I'm really happy that you, you uh, were able to, to be on the show, man. Thank you very much. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now at Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts. The Wrap with Chris and Chris. Well, once again, like a broken record, here I am again to say that that was a really great episode, Chris. But I will say that this episode was supposed to be about history of a boring town, but it kind of went out on a big tangent of other things involved in the recording of Hello Rockview and just Howard in general. And I wanted to hear a little more about history of a boring town. So what went wrong?
So yeah, you know, uh, when I had uh, uh, contacted Howard, he, uh, he's he got a multitude of songs that he could have picked from his career. I mean, he's done everybody from, you know, My Chemical Romance uh, to Daughtry to Kelly Clarkson, uh, you know, multi-platinum, huge hit records. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was I was stoked. He, he wanted to talk about History of a Boring Town. Um, and then just like any other time Howard and I get to talking, uh, we tend to go off on a tangent. He likes to talk. I like to talk. Um, and uh, lo and behold, we talked about a ton of stuff. Uh, but Boring Town, um, you know, I remember uh, I was still living in Park 16th Apartments uh, in Gainesville, Florida, which has been referenced in a few less than Jake songs. Uh, some of the fans will know. Um, I was living in par- apartment 107, which was uh, <laughs> the a song on Losing Streak. Um, and uh, remember, the song went through a lot of, of of different changes. There, there was no chorus. You know, that same old crowd. That 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 part wasn't written, uh, I believe, until we got in the studio. And um, Roger and I were, were living together with Vinny. Uh, in 107, and uh, Roger had decided to uh, get his own place, uh, apartment 22, in the same complex, and he moved. And around that time, um, we had convinced Capitol Records to buy us a uh, 16-track uh, digital recorder. And uh, you know, Roger was starting to uh, learn his way around that thing. And uh, you know, Hello Rockview was the first record that we actually did our own demos for, and uh, and, and Boring Town uh, was one of those songs. Yeah, man, you just brought it up, and I brought this up to you about this song. Uh, you kind of brought it up in a way, but I wanted to ask you, what is the chorus of this song? Because <laughs> I never thought about it before, but there's the boring life in a boring town part, which I think of as the chorus, but then there's the that same old town. That that part also seems like the chorus. So this is the million dollar question, man. What is the chorus of this song? <laughs> well, that's what I'm considering the chorus now is, is, you know, that same old crowd. Um, you know, that, that to me is, is, is the chorus. And that's what Howard was looking for. Um, because it, the beginning up into that part, it's the same three chords. It's G, uh, or a, a G to D the whole time. It's just, it's just kind of looped. And, uh, you know, when it gets to that lyric, uh, that you were just speaking of, you know, and of course all the woes are there and it kind of, I, I kind of thought, I guess that was a chorus and Howard's like, no, it's got to go somewhere else. And, uh, you know, right. th- there was other things, the, um, the horn part, uh, at the end, bum, ba-da-da-dum, ba-da-dum. um, that was a guitar lick. Uh, that I had written. So after like, I don't know, maybe the second verse, it, it went to the bridge part or before the bridge part, which the, the bridge is still in the song. Um, it had stopped. And then the guitar just went like this thing. And, uh, you know, Howard was like, well, what is that? It kind of comes out of nowhere. and It doesn't really do anything. And uh, we ended up uh, uh, making that the horn line, which we we, we still do a lot to, to this day as we'll uh, you know, something we've written on a guitar that translates better on horns and uh, or sometimes the horns do something that translates better on guitar. So it just kind of depends on what uh, what works for that particular song. Right. Hey, and it's a real testament to you guys as songwriters and to how you guys worked with Howard and what he brought to the table that I honestly think that even without the the big breakdown, which you're calling the chorus, the boring life in a boring town part could have been the chorus. And for 99% of bands, if they would have had that song and had that, what what I'm calling, what I thought was the chorus at first, the boring life in a boring town part, that would have been it. They would have just been like, well, that's our chorus. That's the song. Build it around that. And yeah, maybe there wouldn't have been a lot of changes, but we've talked about that on this podcast too, about songs where things change within the same chord progression there's builds and 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 melodies change but the chord progression stays the same so you know that's cool that that howard pushed you guys to take the song there because it just became this way more epic of a song well you know it, 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 it also drops to halftime there so the drums and then that's when the big guitars come in at, at that chorus so it right. just kind of lifts that whole part and it just kind of needed it the interesting thing about this song um you know it goes to a second verse which is uh, a little bit shorter than the than the first 
um, picks back up with the second chorus. And then from there, it goes to the bridge. And after the bridge, it goes to a guitar lead uh, that, that has a interplay with some horns. And then it comes back into essentially a verse. Um, but the verse now is is heavy. It's got heavy guitars. It's not it's not ska. And then it has an outro. A boring life, a boring town. Woes are happening. So it's kind of still harking back to the verse, but it never goes back to what we're calling the chorus now. <laughs> right. And and that was our quirkiness in the, in the early days of, of you know, and, and sometimes we try to get back to that because there, there's there's a certain charm of that. But I remember because, of course, this was done on Pro Tools that uh, Howard had sent. I still have the cassette somewhere. I'd love to dig that out and, and digitize it. But uh, he had actually stuck the chorus at the end of the song again. So after it comes back to the what would be like, I guess, the third verse, essentially, um, he had edit, made an edit and it comes back to the chorus and it just and, it, and the chorus loops and it kind of just fades out uh, that same old crowd. And it just goes. It, it never says a boring life, a boring. Whoa, like the the verse, how it ends now that uh, that wasn't there. He had chopped it and he said, you know, what do you guys think of this? And, and I, I we were just so for lack of a better word, uh, punk rock, <laughs> like, no, it can't go back to the chorus. And, uh, I don't know. I, uh, hindsight's 2020. I, I, I don't think I could change the song now, but it probably should have went back to that. Cause that chorus is so catchy. Yeah. I mean, it's great. Uh, the, the other thing I wanted to touch on before we finish up here is just the, the, the theme of the song, which it's another thing we've, we've touched upon. You and I have talked about, uh, that everyone can relate to, or most people anyway, about you know, your town, your town being this boring place that you, you want to leave. Uh, and I don't care if you're living in Tennessee or you're living in Pennsylvania or you're, or if you're living in Malibu at some point, someone feels that, uh, that, that feeling like, Oh, I, I got to get out of this place. This, this place is boring. Uh, everywhere else is cooler than this. And, uh, you know, I feel like this is the quintessential less than Jake song that conveys that feeling. And it's probably why it's one of the most popular less than Jake songs. Yeah. I mean, you know, that was a lot of our themes in our early tunes, uh, this and look what happened about leaving town about, uh, you know, getting out and, and starting over, starting fresh. And I think everybody can kind of relate to that. You know, there was, uh, people that we knew, uh, Vinny's friends from New Jersey that swore it was about up there. And then there was our friends from Port Charlotte, Florida that swore the song was written about Port Charlotte. And it, uh, it could be written about anywhere, uh, anywhere in the world. Was it written about somewhere in particular? No, that's the thing. It, it really wasn't, but certainly it was modeled after definitely where Vinny and I met, uh, you know, Port Charlotte, uh, Florida was a very sleepy little, uh, retirement community for lack of a better word. Uh, and uh, there wasn't much to do. It was boring as hell. And, uh, you know, that's why we gravitated towards punk rock. It gave us an outlet in a town that, uh, you know, would, would shut down at nine o'clock every night. True. That's it. Yeah, yeah. De <laughs> definitely, definitely relatable to probably most people listening to this because most people aren't living in Vegas or something like that. So, uh, yeah, anyway, man, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Obviously, uh, the songwriting aspect. I'm glad I get to talk to you. I get to interview you for a second here about <laughs> about songwriting. I get to play the Krista makes. And uh, speaking of songwriting. I hope you like my segue there. Uh, if anyone out there is interested in having a custom song written for them by Chris, uh, you can actually do that. You can hit up Chris. Chris, do you want to tell them about that for I, a minute? I would love to. Yeah. Thank you, uh, everybody out there for the support. Uh, I'd love to write you a custom song jingle uh, for your business, uh, for your pleasure. Uh, also offering, uh, Chris and I are offering uh, custom animation. Um, with a, uh, a custom song. And you can find out all about this at kristamakes.com, uh, which redirects you to the YouTube page. You can see our examples. I uh, want to thank each and every one of you. Uh, you know, We started uh, talking about this last week, um, about the animation and, and the, the custom song, and uh, already got a couple of orders uh, coming in. Uh, we could do uh, animation for your band, for your business, uh, for your family, uh, whatever you can think of, we'd love to. Um, I'd love to write you a custom song. I also offer one-on-one -on -one live video sessions. And uh, <clears throat> for more information on all that, you can write me at kristamakes at gmail.com. I can be found on Instagram at lessthanchrisd, on Twitter at lessthanchris, and on Facebook at the official kristamakes. And uh, yeah, please, uh, please subscribe uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, if you could join the Krista Makes a Podcast Facebook group, we'd really appreciate it. 
And uh, the, the best thing for us is word of mouth. Uh, uh, please, please tell a friend about us. We'd really appreciate it. Yeah, we got some really great episodes coming up. So, uh, you know, stay tuned. Until next week. See you then. Hey there, I'm Johnny Christ from Avenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.